Judges chapter 14 verse 1 to 19. Uh, we, are in, we are making good progress in Judges. And hopefully you have an outline in front of you that says God overrules. Now I've already mentioned this quote before which says it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. Of course those are the familiar words from Charles Dickens a tale of two cities, which, as I've said before, perfectly summarizes the book of Judges that we've been going through. I think you agree with me, as we've been going through Judges, we've seen that it is more than an historical account of how God's people settled in the Promised Land. That's, that's a given. It's, it's, it's an historical account. But it is more than that. As we've been going through Judges, we've been reminded that it is a story of how God uses sinful and broken people in unexpected ways to accomplish his purposes. And as we shall see this evening, I think you agree with me, as we shall see this evening, um, this is especially so in the life of Samson, perhaps more than any of the judges we have met. We'll see this evening that as Samson is raised up, God is not only working through a sinful man, but he's also working through Samson's sinful actions to accomplish his purposes. Last week we saw Samson being born, right? You know, we had that miraculous birth of Samson when the angel appeared and delivered that good news to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. And Samson was born, and the, the Bible says God was tearing him up in Mahanadan. Well, today we will see Samson now starting to deliver. Israel from the Philistines. But he's going to be doing it in a very interesting way, in a way we don't expect. And so look with me at verse 1 of chapter 14. And the first truth I want us to share, to see in this passage, which is in front of your outline, first of all, is that God overrules our sin. God overrules our sin. Uh, We see in verse 1 that Samson is now a young man, and like many young people, he enjoys going on a walkabout. <laughs> I see a lot of kids walking around. You ask them, where are you going? I'm just taking a walk. And Samson is a bit like that. He's going on a walkabout. And he heads off to Timnah. Look at this one. Samson went down to Timnah. Now, Timnah is a town on the coastal plain. It's on the west, uh, west side of Israel, so to speak. And it is a town at this time which is being controlled by the Philistines. Samson has seen a young lady there, we are taught, who has caught his attention. Let's read on this one. Samson went down to Timnah, and the Timnah is so one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, he's so excited by this woman he's seen, he quickly comes home and tells his parents about it. Look at verse 2. Then he came up and told his mother and his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. He wants to marry her, right? As young people like to do, you know, he wants to get married. And now you're probably thinking, why is he asking his parents for permission? I mean, in our culture, we don't, you don't go to your parents who ask for permission in this country, do we? Uh, people just get on with it. Uh, they move in with someone, and before you know it, they are talking about marriage, or they're just living with someone as it so happens. 
Marriages in our culture tend to be between individuals. But in this society, in the Near East, and some societies, for example, where I come from, in Zambia, marriage is between families. And so before I approached to marry Eunice, I had to approach the family first, appoint a middleman. And Samson is doing something similar. Samson is coming, he's asking his parents to help him. But notice that his parents are not happy about that. Look at verse 3. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? It's a rhetorical question. They are like, what has gotten into you? What's wrong with you? This is not a child who raised. You're meant to be a Nazarite. What are you doing going off to marry a woman? Now, why are they shocked? Well, it is not racism. Uh, they're not saying don't marry her because she's not Jewish. It's not because she's not Jewish. The Bible does not permit racism or treating other people based on race. No. The Bible, in fact, as people who are not Jewish, who became part of God's people. Like Reb and Ruth, both who, of course, are ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mrs. Manoah and Mr. Manoah are not racist. What they're shocked about is Samson's choice of marrying a non-believer. And there's the emphasis there. She isn't saying, why are you marrying a Philistine? No, she's saying, why are you marrying an uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision it was a sacrament commanded by God to set apart the people of Israel for himself. He set them apart as God's people. The Philistines are not circumcised. They are outside the covenant. And so Mr. and Mrs. Manoah are shocked that a believer, Samson, should marry, even think about marrying a non-believer. And we know in the New Testament, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be equally, well, unequally yoked, so to speak. Believers are not permitted to marry non-believers. But Samson is not interested in his parents' opinion. Let's read on verse 3. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. He's basically telling me, look, I've seen her, I like how she looks, I want to marry her, she's beautiful, let's get on with this. It's none of your business, thank you very much. That's what he's telling his parents. He's saying, look, it's my choice. I just need your money for the wedding. That's what he means. Get up for me. He's not saying, just come and be my middleman. So you've got to fund this thing. Get up for me. Support me on this. I want to marry her. He's using his parents to satisfy his sinful desires. And Samson is a bit like many of our young people today, even in our church here. Spoiled children who are not interested in the wisdom of their parents or other people around them. They just want to use people for their own selfish lives. They have polluted wisdom in their thinking. Instead of listening to people close to them, they close their ears. Like those people that stoned Stephen. They're stoning Stephen. And they don't want to hear anything. They just close it. The Bible says in Acts that they rush to Stephen and they close their ears. Not interested to hear what other people have to say. And many of our young people are like that. Samson here is breaking the fifth commandment. 
He is supposed to honor his mother and father, but to our surprise, he's not doing that. But there's even a greater surprise. We are told in verse 4 that what Samson is doing is actually from God. Look at verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. We should note there that the he, in verse 4, is God. The verse is saying that God is somehow working through Samson's sin to begin delivering Israel from the Philistines. We need to pause and just reflect on that. Samson is sinning. And we are told yet in verse 4 that God is somehow working through that sin to bring about deliverance. God plans to use the very sinfulness of Samson, his rampant sexual appetite and temper, to bring about the confrontation between two nations. Now we need to pause again and just reflect that. What is this about? Well, what has happened here, you see, is that the Philistines and Israel, they are so interlocked together as a nation, as almost like one people. Sin has corroded the entire society of Israel. Remember when we started off last week, we said that the people didn't cry out to God. After 40 years of oppression, they never cried out. God saved us. No. God took the initiative to reach out to them. Why was that? Because they are so interlocked. And next week we're going to see that the men of Judah even want to fight Samson. When Samson is trying to serve them. The sin has corrupted them. And what, what God is doing here is that he almost has to work through this stinking sin of Israel. To pull them apart. We see here that the God of the Bible does not just work in our lives despite sin, but sometimes he works through our sin. God overrules our sin for his sovereign purposes. It's a hard teaching, isn't it? We might even say it is a strange teaching. A holy God working through sin to accomplish his holy purposes. Now, we need to be clear that God, overruling our sin, does not take away from us our responsibility. You know, some people have a tendency to blame God all the time. You know, God is sovereign. Yes, they will say a driver causes, you know, they are driving and perhaps they have an accident and then they're driving carelessly and they say, well, God is sovereign, so he must have made that happen. Some people think like that. They haven't prepared for the exam. They fail the exam and then they turn around and say, well, God is sovereign. He made me fail. Is God sovereign or are our choices real? The Bible says it's both. It is both. The Bible teaches that all human decisions are real and tangible. Samson is the one on the road to Timnah. Not God. It is Samson. Something is disobeying the parents. You decided this evening to come for fellowship. These decisions are genuine and real. And yet we see at the same time that God, the Bible says that God orders and directs every single decision. There are no accidents to God. And so as believers, 
We must hold both. We must affirm both truth. God is completely sovereign and we have genuine responsibilities for our action. You are not a robot. God overrules our sin, we see here, and works through sin in such a way that our sins are real and fully owned by us. We are all responsible for our sins. So this is the first truth we learn here. God overrules our sin. God is bigger than our sin. The second truth we learn from this passage is it doesn't just mean that God just overrules our sin. God overrules our sin. How does he do it? Graciously. Graciously. That's our second point. God overrules our sin graciously. Now, you see that Samson has bullied his parents and they give in and off they go to see the lady in Timna. Look at this part. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timna. And they came to the vineyards of Timna. And as they approach those vineyards, we pause there, we see that something unexpected happens on the way there. Let's read on. And behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Now, I have never faced a lion. But when I was young, uh, in, living up in Inchelenge as a boy, the governor of the town owned a very large dog. And I remember wandering off from my playing with some friends, and once I was confronted by a very, very large dog. So that's the closest I've ever come to a lion, I guess. And one lesson I had learned prior to that is that when a lion comes to you, you must all, well, when a dog comes to you, you must always stand still. I don't know if you guys know about this, but that's what I learned as a young boy. Always stand still when a dog comes to you. Just be like that, you know. Uh, pretend you are a tree, <laughs> and the dog will leave you alone. But I don't think that works with lions here. If, if Samson here tries to pretend he's a tree, the lion is going to eat him up. Uh, whatever Samson does, he is standing, sleeping, he's about to be eaten. He is powerless. But then we see here that God shows up. We are told, look at verse 6. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young god. God has saved Samson. Now, that does not seem strange until you realize that God has saved him on his way to commit sin. God has protected some. Samson from being eaten by the lion while Samson is where? Samson is intent on stabbing God in the heart by sinning against him. And we see here that the sins of Samson know no end. After he kills the lion, look how we are told. Let's read on verse 6. We are told, but he did not tell his, pa- his father or mother what he had done. And so Samson is keeping the truth from them, he's lying to them. And so with the lion now out of the way, the Manoah family make their way to Timna, and they arrive, and Samson professes love. Look at verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eye. Samson is happy. The father, he's made his, he's made his mother and father agree to this deal, and he, the, the woman is right in Samson's eyes. God has protected Samson on his way to commit sin. 
This passage is telling us that Samson is a sinful man being protected by God. And what we're seeing here is almost like God, as I, liked, as, I, as I mentioned it last time in the context of Gideon, it is almost like God is standing as a bouncer to a nightclub. There is evil going on in the life of Samson, but God is still shielding him, protecting him. How can God go to this lens to use such a flawed man? Shouldn't God only use and or protect people who are good? Well, this event, again, is reminding us what we learned last week, of just how beautiful God is. This is the grace of God in action. You see, God loves Israel so much that he's willing to work through their sin. He loves Samson so much that he's willing to work through him despite him being a flawed individual. God is allowing Samson to stab him in his holy chest, so to speak, because he loves Israel. He's willing, if you like, to suffer injury on their behalf to serve them. And friends, it's not just Israel. God loves us, has here enough to work through human sinful actions to serve us. And, and we find this as we come to the next phase of this passage. That brings us to the very heart of this passage. The final point I want to share this evening is that God overrules our sin to serve us. So the first point we've learned is that God overrules our sin. Point number two, God overrules our sin graciously. What is the point? The point is that, the third point, God overrules our sin. Why? To serve us. So let's go back to Samson. The families have agreed the marriage, and Samson heads home. So he's been to Timna. They've agreed the deal has been sealed in verse 7. Now they are heading back. Uh, to their town of Zora, And then, after some time, Samson returns with his, we- his dad for the wedding bash. Okay? So they are coming now for the real thing, the wedding. Look at verse 8. After some days, he returned to Tekel. Now, as he's on his way back to Timna, he remembers the lion he killed on the first journey. Right? And he turns to see the lion. Let's read on verse 8. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and Annie. So Samson, we're told in verse 9, he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So Samson is now getting honey from this dead animal and he doesn't tell his parents what's going on there. More deception from Samson, by the way. More lies, more deception. But why is he doing this? Well, he's doing it because Samson, remember, is a Nazarite. Nazarites are not meant to go near dead bodies. He knows he's sinning. And my goodness, I mean, if Mrs. Manoah finds out that Samson has been doing this. She's been keeping her own vows. Remember, there are some vows she had to keep for Samson while Samson was in the womb. And Samson is ruining all of that. She wouldn't be very happy. So Samson decides not to tell his mom or his dad. And so they arrive uh, in Timna, and the father makes all the wedding arrangements with the woman while Samson gets ready for a seven-day party. Look at verse 10 to verse 11. 
His father went down to the women, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, that is Samson, they brought 30 companions to be with him. So Samson is parting. The feast there is a seven-day feast. It's a Philistine drinking bout. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can assume Samson is breaking more vows. He's a Nazarite. He's not meant to drink alcohol. He's not meant to, be, to live like this, but he's doing more sin. And now we see Samson to show just how clever he is. Okay? He decides perhaps to impress his wife. He decides to throw a riddle. I mean, this is like the, uh, the, the, the like maybe like a, similar to what you would have as a quiz when you're having a party. But Samson wants to show just he's a clever guy. He throws a riddle to them. Look at verse 12 to verse 14. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. He's telling his guests, if you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve it. Now, I don't know about you, but when you hear that riddle, I don't know if you tried to solve it first on your own, but it's a con job, isn't it? You know this is an impossible riddle. It is not even a riddle. It is a con job by Samson. But the Philistines have no idea uh, that it's a con job, and they're trying to solve it. And they have already foolishly agreed to the bet of solving this riddle without hearing it. And so what do they do? They turn to his wife. I think they've been threatening his wife from the first day, but we see in verse 15 that they ramp up the pressure. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice or seduce your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? So they've been pressuring her from day one, but they've ramped up the pressure and said, look, we're going to kill you now if you don't do anything about this. And she reaches the end of her rope. Look at verse 16 to verse 17. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? By the way, that's, that's very rude, isn't it? I mean, it's best to say, look, my father and mother matters to me more than you. So why should I tell you? He's a very rude guy. But that's what he tells her. Uh, in verse 17, she weeps. We're told she wept before him for seven days. So she had been weeping from day one. Is the point I made earlier. She wept before him for seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard, then she told the riddle to her people. So that's what's happened there. And with the riddle now being told to her people, well, the Philistines are happy. They win the bet. Verse 18 tells us, And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than any? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson, his own con job has come to an end, and he is not impressed at all. Look at verse 18. And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my ephah, 
that's like my cow. <laughs> you would not have found out my reason. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Samson here that he's calling his wife a cow. But uh, some commentators obviously don't get very impressed with him at this point. But I think it's just a phrase. He's simply saying, you know, someone precious you, you had played around. If you haven't done that, then you wouldn't have found out the riddle. He's not very happy for them doing this thing. And then we are told at that very moment of Samson being unhappy with them, God steps in again for Samson. Look at verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, that is Samson, and he went down to Ascalon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had explained the riddle. Samson has now killed 30 men. He has killed them because he needs to take their clothes from them, effectively just killing them, stealing clothes from them, dead bodies, and giving it to the people who had won his bet. He has killed 30 men. Why? He's killed them because of this foolish riddle he had come up with. He has wound, his pride was wounded. And is now acting out of vindictiveness. His, there's no doubt that these actions of Samson has driven by sin. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us. Look how verse 19 ends. In hot anger. Not just ordinary anger. In sinful anger, he went back to his father's house. Such that in verse 20, they think he's gone now. And they give his wife to someone else. So Samson, again, is driven by vindictiveness and, uh, and sin. But then, at the same time, we realize in verse 19 that all of this thing is being accomplished by God. Because we can't miss verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So again, there we have God acting through Samson's sinful action to accomplish his purposes. The Bible is telling us that God is overruling Samson's sin to save his people. Because by Samson now beginning to deliver uh, Israel from the Philistines, he's fulfilling verse 4. Do you know what verse 4 says? That the Lord was seeking a way to deliver Israel. The lesson then here is that salvation is coming through God working through Samson's sin. And what is true for Israel is true for us because this work of God through sin is most powerfully demonstrated in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the sermon of Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to verse 24. It says this to the men of Israel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by him. Peter in that sermon again reminds us of that through the sinful action of man, God was still the one acting. 
to put Jesus to death. Who killed Jesus? Sinful people did. But God also killed Jesus. Because the Bible tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And there is even a third point. Jesus offered himself up, we are told, in Ephesians chapter 2. He died not merely as one crushed by God, but he offered himself up willingly to die for our sins. Peter, and this passage, is telling us that God uses free, evil choices of human beings to deliver his people from evil itself. God has used free evil choices of Samson to deliver Israel. God has used free evil choices of human beings to deliver us from sin through our greater Samson, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Well, this truth should comfort you. We see so much evil in our nation and we wonder whether God is on holiday. We look at the struggle of sin in the lives of believers we love and care about and wonder whether it is truly the end of the road for them. We sometimes look at our own lives and wonder about all those wasted years we spent, mad in sin, resisting God, and sometimes as believers when we think about how much sin we've committed in the past, before we even knew God, it brings tears to our eyes. Ah, but we see that in all the ugliness of our sins, all the wrongs, God somehow, even now, is still doing his work to make us more like him. Friends, the words of Romans 8, verse 28, must be taken literally. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, not some things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Even sin worked together in the end for good for those who love God. We can agree with Paul because what? God is always one step ahead. He's working to overrule our sin. In Jesus, God tears up the plan and it's become bigger than our sin. This truth should also comfort those of you who are parents this evening, or grandparents, you are perhaps feeling disappointed with the unbelieving state of your children or your grandchildren. Many Christian parents feel like Mr. and Mrs. Manoa. You thought you were raising a Nazareth, a would-be missionary to Papua New Guinea. You hoped your grandchild would turn out to be the next Billy Graham. But alas, the child does not want to know God. The grandchild is not interested. And you feel disappointed. You are asking perhaps, where did I go wrong? Did I talk too much about hell? Did I perhaps talk too much about heaven? And they just thought, did I, was, it, was I just being a bad parent? Was I such a bad example? Did I get angry all the time? You feel disappointed, you feel discouraged, and you are left with many Questions. Friends, 
Be encouraged by this passage. It is not about you. I think you knew that already. But this passage is homing in on that point. Because verse 4 reminds you something else, doesn't it? We are told in verse 4, and his mother, his father and mother did not know. Sometimes as a parent you just don't know. You did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At, the ta- at that time, the Philistines ruled Israel. What that verse is telling us is that in the end, disobedience and refusal, you can trust God through that because it's all part of God's work. So yes, by his own providence, he may decide even now to still work through their current disobedience to bring them to himself. Or he may choose not to. There's no need to look back and feel sad. Trust him. Look to him. I, as a pastor, I must do the same. There are times you tell people, come, turn to Christ. And you're wondering, am I doing something wrong? Am I not stating things clearly? Should I have spent more time with that person or that individual? Where have I gone wrong on this? But then the answer is verse 4, isn't it? We don't know. In the end, it's the Lord's providence that works. It is God himself who compels people to himself. And even in their current disobedience, we can trust him, isn't it? We can trust that perhaps the Lord himself is working through that to draw them to himself. And this truth, of course, should, more than, should also comfort all of us as we seek to serve God in other areas. In our own work, because you see, friends, even the most faithful followers of Jesus this evening sometimes commit sin. We do our best to study his word, to serve God with best intention. But often we do it in our own flesh, to satisfy our own pride. We do our best to evangelize, but why are we doing it? Perhaps for our own ego. Our very best works are corrupted by sin. Sometimes that can raise doubts on whether God is working through us at all. But I thank God for this passage because this passage reminds us that God can write straight through crooked pencils. God is bigger than my sin. God is bigger than your sin. His amazing grace can use a flawed pastor, a sinner like me. His amazing grace can use a flawed husband like you. His amazing grace can use a flawed granddad like you. His amazing grace can use all flawed believers. If God can use a bad-tempered womanizer like Samson, if he can use a street gangster like Jephthah, he can surely use any one of us. So let us look not to ourselves, but to him. That's what this passage is calling us to do. But at the same time, this passage is not only comforting us, it is also warning us. It is warning us. It's saying, just because God is using me does not mean God approves of me. We must not mistake God's work through us for evidence that God has finished his work in us. Just because you have some gift in some area or you are being used by God or God has used you over the years, doesn't mean God approves of how you live your life. 
Indeed, we should say as we reflect on the briefness of life, just because God has sustained you for 70, 80 years does not mean, or 90, does not mean that God approves of how you have lived. We see here God is using Samson, but he does not approve of Samson's actions, or at least how Samson is acting. The sin of Samson grieves God deeply. So let us look at our sins very seriously. All believers here should take a look at their sins seriously. Why? Because if a vicious criminal stabbed your daughter, or your wife, or your husband, or or your brother, would you preserve the knife in a glass and display it in your room or living room? Would you? Would you take it to work? No. You wouldn't. You would never want to see that knife again. What sin is that knife? Sin is what the Lord Jesus came to die for. Our sins... Yes, I know theologically is the Lord who put him to death, but our sin also put the Lord Jesus to death in a sense. Because Jesus died for our sins. Our sins knifed him. That's how serious our sins are. We fool ourselves if we say Jesus is our friend, and at the same time, we are stabbing and crucifying him all over again. By willful sinning. It is a lie, friends. It is a lie for people to claim they have truly repented. When they show no seriousness in true surrendering to Christ. When they are hugging sin closely. Let's not kid ourselves. When we have repented, God transforms our posture towards sin. We are not perfect. We are still growing, but there must be a decisive break, a new hatred of sin. True followers of Jesus do not hear that God overrules sin and delights. Some of you may have wondered, well, the pastor is talking about God overruling sin. Is Is there a possibility of being misunderstood here? Not if you're a true believer. We can talk about these mysteries of the faith, so to speak, with full confidence that those who have been changed Given a new heart, we will understand what this doctrine teaches. Because you see, friends, to think that I am so sinful that God must work through my sin. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make me want to sin more. That thought is enough to make me keep trusting Jesus for my sin. Because I'm such a mess that God has to penetrate through the mess to even do his work in my life. True followers of Jesus do not hear this doctrine and relax. It makes us tremble. It forces us right to our knees, begging to God. So if you're trusting in Jesus this evening, be joyful that God is bigger than your sin. Tell him that every day. Take comfort in that as you pray for people in your life. 
as we pray for God to restore people even in this fellowship. At the same time, let's plead to God to identify sins in our lives and repent promptly. Let us cling to Jesus because Jesus is all we have. He's our only hope against sin. Amen.